You're listening to the teaching ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church, a relevant biblical community. For more information, visit houstonsfirst.org. Thank you, Star, so much for that kind introduction. She mentioned that Sue and I have seven children, 24 grandchildren. You know, in a, in a more irreverent phase years ago, um, I, I was often asked, uh, are you Mormon uh, or Catholic or I just... I don't know, one time I just popped off and said, nope, we're just fun-loving Baptists. (laughs) So it is kind of crazy around our house uh, during the holidays, and we we love it. It's it's wonderful to live on campus, and it's it's a big house that the university has provided. And believe me, we take up every square inch of it with all those kids lying around on cots and extra bedrooms and mattresses and so on. But it's it's a lot of fun. I want to say thank you to... Uh, Pastor Greg, for the invitation to preach. Uh, I've been able to speak here over the years a few times, and it is wonderful to be here and to anticipate uh, the fellowship with you. You are a wonderful congregation. You're very responsive, and uh, I I love being here. For the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, I've had people from the church say, well, we're looking forward to to hearing you on the 29th, and uh, I really appreciate that. I, I, I just hope that you know, after the sermon, they're still glad that they said that. So um, we'll soon see, I guess, right? But we, we, have, uh, we have an amazing passage. I, I know that you all have been studying First Timothy, maybe a little bit out of Titus as well, but particularly First uh, Timothy, and going through the topic of uh, the, uh, the people of the church. And there have been youth and elders and widows, uh, particularly, and uh, different groups within the, within the church. Uh, are identified. This this particular message has to do with the leaders of the church, and our our text is First Timothy five, beginning with with verse seventeen, uh, which talks about uh, the elders. Actually, the elders have already been referred to in this book. It's it's interesting. Paul gives qualifications for elders in chapter three, as he does as well for deacons. So they've already been mentioned. And sometimes people wonder, well, why does he come back? to mention the elders again. We've already talked about them. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but you'll see that it's at an appropriate point uh, in in this uh, great book. Sometimes 1 Timothy and Titus as well, sometimes it's treated as if it were a manual of church discipline that some scholars used to say, and this is probably on the wrong track, they used to say something like, well, you know, this is, uh, the church has developed, it's gotten beyond its early days of enthusiasm, and now they have to make sure they have order in the church. And so uh, Paul writes to a young minister and gives him instructions for sort of church, a church manual, a manual of discipline or some, some such. Well, certainly there are instructions about the qualifications for what it means uh, to be a deacon or what it means to be an elder, uh, how to put widows uh, uh, on the list or not, how to, how to deal with young widows, how to deal with older widows, those who are widows indeed, as, as Paul says. But the truth is, this particular book is written in an hour of trouble and crisis, particularly in Ephesus. And that's how leadership, it's an appropriate uh, context for us to discuss leadership, because very typically, leaders emerge uh, in times of crisis. Leaders are particularly noted for their ability to deal with hardship and conflict and difficulty and, and troubled times. Who can possibly imagine World War II without Winston Churchill? Uh, Winston Churchill, the war had already begun. There were those who didn't want him. 
uh, for all the various reasons that relate to his eccentricities and his decisiveness and his unusual personality. But then uh, by the providence of God, he was, uh, you know, elected and uh, as prime minister and World War II and the courage of, of Britain would not have had the kind of, of, uh, of outcome that it had without the, the constant communication and the courage and the decision making and the envisioning and the clear talk of a Winston Churchill. On our side, we had a man like Dwight David Eisenhower, who's a great leader. It, it, those kinds of situations, world wars and conflicts and trouble bring out great leaders. But it's also true that there are times when you can have a lot of trouble and the great leaders have not yet emerged. The old debate about do, do the times make the leader, or does the leader shape the times? Well, they're both true. But in, in, in Ephesus, that's where Timothy is, and it's very clear. In Ephesus, and I want us to read just a few verses to give some context, this, this is not a simple church manual for how to order a church. This is a church, th th here are some orders about how the church ought to operate with respect to leaders, particularly in light of the fact that there are some straying and wayward elders who are teaching nonsense and producing fruitless discussion, and in fact, disrupting, as Paul tells Timothy, whole households by their strange teaching. So just uh, stay with me a couple of minutes. I want to see a few passages in 1 Timothy, and I want you to see the context of challenge and difficulty. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, this is at the very beginning of the letter. And Paul states the reason for the letter and, and why he has left Timothy there. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, Paul was in Ephesus. He was nearly killed in a riot. There was a great tumult. And finally, the town clerk settled it down. He gave further instructions. And then he, he, left, he left Ephesus and went to Macedonia but in the meantime, having suffered great hardship, he left Timothy there for Timothy to do something very, very important. I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia to remain on at Ephesus in order that, here's why Timothy was there, you may instruct certain persons not to teach strange doctrines, not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than the furthering of God's provision, which is by faith. Verse 6, For some men straying from these things have turned aside to be fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions, etc., etc. And he goes on at the end of the chapter, verse 18, he gives Timothy these instructions. He says, This command I entrust to you, O Timothy, my son. This is a heartfelt plea that in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you need to fight the good fight of faith. There's a conflict going on in Timothy and first Timothy and especially in second Timothy is told he's going to have to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He's going to have to be willing to suffer uh, with Paul for the sake of the gospel uh, that he, he's got to be strong and not so shy and timid. He's got to let no one despise your youth. He tells Timothy he's got to be an example and a model for those elders and for the household churches and for all Christians uh, in Ephesus. Uh, and so Paul finally says to Timothy in, in 119, Timothy, keep faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these, he, he calls names. 
are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan. He's excommunicated them. They're outside the protection of the body of Christ and, and, the, and the work of the Spirit, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. These are, these are hard words. It, it's, it's sometimes hard for us to imagine the situation because we're accustomed to thinking of a single church that's got its uh, deacons and elders and so on, its leadership, its staff. In this situation in Ephesus, what you have are multiple household churches. And every church probably has an elder who is a teaching leader of that church or a managing leader of that church. And so what we have here are some of the household churches that are remaining faithful, but others are being led astray and it's disrupting whole households that they're going from house to house, uh, teaching uh, their nonsense. And, and Paul uh, tells Timothy, you, you, can't, you can't let that happen. He says, for example, that um, in, in chapter 3, verse 14, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But if I'm delayed, I want you to know what you need to do in the meantime. I'm writing to you so that you may know how one ought to conduct oneself in the household of God. Notice what he says. This is, this is such a high-flown statement, it's usually passed by, but it fits the context. The household of God, the church and the churches, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. The church is the steward that has received the guardianship of the gospel. That's why Paul tells Timothy at the very end of this book and tells him at the beginning of 2 Timothy, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Guard the gospel. It's the gospel that's at stake. Another expression for the gospel in the New Testament is commonly uh, the truth, the word of truth. So Timothy, uh, the church is the pillar and support of the truth. We've, we've been told what is what is uh, the core uh, set of convictions, and you must maintain those. And he goes on to repeat what are some of these core convictions. It's written in a poetic form. It may have been an early Christian hymn, uh, but here he calls it the mystery of godliness. It's the, it's the mysterious, trustworthy confession, common confession. And it gives basically the incarnation, the resurrection, the ascension, the preaching of the gospel, the faith in the gospel, and then the final, either the final confirmation or a reference again to the enthronement of the Son. He who was revealed in the flesh, Christmas, the incarnation, was vindicated by the Spirit, raised from the dead. Beheld by angels, he ascends into the heavenly spheres, and the angels worship him in his heavenly ascent. It's in Hebrews, 1 Peter, lots of places. He's proclaimed among the nations, the gospel is preached. This is an early Christian a catechism or confession. He's proclaimed among the nations. He's believed on in the world. There are those who are hearing the gospel and believing it. And he is taken up. He is the one who, it can mean several things. It, it means resurrected with a glorious body or ascended to the right hand of God or can even refer to the final consummation. But it's an early Christian creed. And Timothy is supposed to guard the gospel. Because chapter 4 Again, this is no placid church manual. There's a lot of trouble going on in Ephesus. Paul has just been sort of run uh, out of the city. Uh, again, a riot and a tumult. And uh, Paul says, here's the source of all that trouble, of all the trouble, Timothy, that you need to try to set right. Chapter 4, verse 1. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful 
spirits and doctrines that are generated by demons. And by means of the hypocrisy of liars, they will be seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. These are people, men particularly, who forbid marriage. Here's some of their strange teaching. They forbid marriage. They advocate abstaining uh, zealously from certain foods, which God has created for us to gratefully share. Um, they're, they're, sh they're given to those who believe and know the truth, etc., etc. But you, Timothy, verse 7, have nothing to do with worldly fables. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Timothy is, is being uh, exhorted, exhorted to, to hold on to the truth and to teach the truth. And, and as Paul tells Titus in, in 1.9, you not only have to be able, Titus, to appoint elders in all those cities, but you need to know the truth yourself. You need to hold on to the gospel so that you can teach it and refute those who distort it. It's a, it's a vital function, and that's the main thing that's going on here. The church structure, the deacons, the elders, the leaders, are for the very purpose of guarding, preserving, keeping, teaching, exhorting the truth of the gospel. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Or 2 Timothy uh, 2, O Timothy, the things you have heard uh, from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrusted to others who will also be able to teach others. It's guarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Leadership is such an amazing topic. And again, leadership is typically needed. We need it desperately in our world today. Leadership is desperately needed in difficult and troubling times. Uh, it, it's I used to say leadership is kind of a cottage industry in our country, but it's way more. It's a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar industry. If you consult on leadership or write essays on leadership or do seminars on leadership or write articles or books on leadership, it is an amazing, amazing uh, area uh, of, of learning. And, and there are many great books. I, I, there are certain books on leadership. I love reading books on leadership and time management in envisioning processes and communication and all those kinds of things. And there are many great ones. I mean, John Cotter or John Blanchard or Jim Collins, good to great, or Peter Drucker. One of the most interesting things about all the, of the greatest leadership books uh, is that they, are, they, they typically draw upon biblical principles, whether the authors acknowledge it or recognize it or not. It's, it's very common. They'll, they'll talk about the things that, that I could substantiate from 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus about leadership. I mean, for example, uh, leaders, to summarize some of these, uh, some of these uh, books and theories on leadership right out of the Bible, uh, for example, every leader is able to have leading means influencing others in times of need and crisis, so, or, or influencing others to maintain the upward growth of an organization. Uh, Every leader's got to have vision. You've got to be able to imagine the future. You've got to be able to imagine what can go wrong so you can warn about the, the, the impending future if things don't change. Or you have to be able to, to set, a, set a picture for what things for what could be. It's very interesting. The word that Paul commonly uses, the first word he ever used about elders was a word that, um, it's, it's an odd Greek term, proes. Dotes, it sort of means, it's, it's like our word president, which is, has a Latin base. It, it means to preside or to direct 
or to lead, or the one who stands in front and manages and directs and, and, uh, and leads. Paul used that term in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, and he said you must, you must honor those who have charge over you. It's translated in different ways. It's one of the reasons you don't pick it up. Elders in 1 Timothy 3 are told, overseers are told, that they must manage their own households well. It's the same word. Our deacons are told that they likewise must manage their own households well. It's the first thing a leader does is to be able to see the big picture, to be able to see the way things are, to see the way things are going to be, both for good or for ill, and then, and then to communicate uh, that vision to others. One of the great skills that all leaders have is the ability to communicate. They have... It, it's not always oratorical communication. It could be by written letter. It could be by memo. It could be by one-on-one by -on -one conversation. It could be by addressing a large crowd. But communication skills to tell people what's going on and what's at stake, the ability to see the big picture and to inspire others to act. Abraham Lincoln, almost exactly, about three more weeks, almost exactly 160 years ago, November the 19th, 1863, stood for the dedication of the National Cemetery at Gettysburg and delivered in two minutes' time what is one of the most famous speeches in the history of humankind. His predecessor, he wasn't the only one who gave a Gettysburg address. Edward Everett spoke for over two hours prior to Lincoln, and Lincoln was uh, just almost an afterthought, or so it appeared. You know, I often get asked, oh, well, can you just come by our meeting? We've got a guest speaker, but we want you to give greetings or just sort of be there. And so Lincoln had pinned on the back of an envelope uh, this, uh, th this message that later comes to be known as the, the famous Gettysburg Address. And he had been encouraged by one of his cabinet members that it was important for him because the union was politically politically losing the war. And so he had been encouraged by one of his cabinet members to do what, what he could do well, and that is to make a speech. He often gave long speeches, but he said you need to frame the issues so that it can be simply seen. And in the Gettysburg Address, that's exactly what he does. He frames it in terms of a fight for survival for the cause of democracy. Four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war to see whether that nation or any nation so conceived can long endure. It's democracy that's at stake. Then he has the beautiful middle about uh, those who have shed their blood, and then he comes again to the conclusion, and he shapes it in famous words that basically say the same sort of thing as the introduction. He calls upon the hearers to rededicate themselves so that there will be a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish. From the earth. That ability to see what's happening, to communicate what's happening, and to inspire others to, to move and to act, that's, that's of the essence of leadership. 
And of course, there's at least one more. There are actually several more, but there's at least one more element that, that Paul speaks about here. He, he tells Timothy that he has to know how to communicate. Timothy, don't sharply rebuke an older man. Timothy, treat the older women you know, as mothers and the younger uh, women as sisters and the younger men as brothers. So you have to have a people skills and know how to communicate. Timothy's supposed to preach and exhort and teach, etc. But the one thing that he exhorts upon Timothy, right alongside maintaining the gospel, preaching and teaching the truth, the other thing is Timothy, like the elders, like the deacons, like all leaders, you have to be a man of character. Flee youthful lusts. Timothy, you have to be godly. You have to discipline yourself, as we read earlier, for the sake of godliness. You have to be like the hardworking farmer. You have to study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly interpreting the word of truth. Timothy, Timothy, be a man of character. Every leader, every great leader has to be a person of character. Every other skill, some people can envision, some people can, can manage, some people can make great decisions, some people can communicate in a wonderful way rhetorically, but if they don't have the right stuff, and the right stuff is a moral character and moral courage and virtue, then they're leaders who can lead, but lead you down the wrong path. Paul wants Timothy, he wants the elders and the deacons to be leaders who can influence the behavior of others by their own good example, by managing and directing their own affairs well, and by holding to the mystery of the faith with sincerity and godliness. And so that brings us to our passage for today. And let me comment as to why he suddenly starts talking about elders again. Why would you do that? It's because this last section is not as much an exhortation to the elders as to what they're supposed to do. The qualifications for an elder or deacon were given in chapter 3. But here, the exhortation is to the household churches, is to the people, as to how they're supposed to respond to and relate to and treat their leaders. I have to tell you, this would be something, what I'm about to tell you would be very hard for, for Greg to say. He, he probably wouldn't say it. But since I'm the guest preacher, I'm going to say it. Verse 17, I'm sorry, yes, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well, and there's that term again, direct, manage, lead, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. The double honor I think I can safely say is on the one hand, because Paul has said this sort of thing in other contexts, in Philippians 2, verses 25 through 29, he talks about Epaphroditus. And he says, Epaphroditus is my fellow worker, my fellow so soldier. He's your priest and minister and messenger to me. He says, acknowledge such men and, 
esteem them highly. He says the same thing at the end of 1 Corinthians uh, 16. He talks about particularly, mentions three different men, but he particularly talks about Stephanus, the household of Stephanus, who have devoted themselves completely to the Word of God and to the ministry for the people of God. And he says such people ought to be esteemed highly and honored. And here Paul says, we now know what the subsets of that honor are. Yes, it's recognition, it's encouragement, it's appreciation, and it's also, and you can't avoid it, pay them something. Now there are times in 1 Corinthians where Paul, for various strategic reasons, did not take money from the Corinthians. He says that in chapter 9. But according to Philippians, on more than one occasion he received support. The Philippians had a generous financial relationship with Paul, and they were partners with him in the preaching of the gospel. And here, Paul uses a specific example that has to do from Old Testament Scripture, Deuteronomy, and from the teachings of Jesus, has to do about remuneration. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. One is the honor of appreciation, but the other is the honor of compensation, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And there's a very, uh, very, very good mental image there. You've got this ox, he's working, he's tied to the yoke, he's, he's grinding uh, the grain in a circle. Now don't put a muzzle on him. Let him eat while he's grinding, you shall, not, you shall not muzzle the ox. And Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 9 uh, that uh, while he was, uh, he, he could have uh, asked based on a scripture like this for compensation for various strategic reasons, he didn't with the Corinthians. But the point was that God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, God's not talking, the main point's not about oxen. No, it's about, it's about human beings. And then he goes on to give an illustration of priests who receive an income from dealing with the, the, the temple sacrifices. But here he said, then he quotes a saying of Jesus right out of Luke. The laborer is worthy of his wages. It's hard to avoid that it goes beyond appreciation and esteem and recognition. But it's, it's an adequate support to do the work that God has called them to do. I'll tell you, Anybody who's a leader in your home, in your family, your club, your organization, wherever it may be, all of us have spheres of influence, small or great. And yours is probably a lot larger than you think. Let me tell you, your sphere of influence is bigger than you think it is. But however, whatever the size of it may be, there's a lot of pressure upon a leader. Leaders, leaders have interesting lives. It, it, can be, it can be a lot of fun at times or can be strange at times. Uh, they're visible. People, well, <laughs> one time in Waco, Sue and I were in the president's house where we lived, and I was, uh, it was late at night. I mean, it was, it was well past 11. I, I always said it was one or two, and Sue says, no, it wasn't quite that late, but I, I sort of think it was. And there were some French doors that opened up from our bedroom to the outside. And I heard this door open. 
thought, I thought I had that locked. And then I sense some people walking in, and I hear my daughter's voice, and here's my parents' bedroom. And here's my parents' bedroom. And this is, she was giving a tour of the house to one of her college friends. I grabbed the covers and it's an interesting life. Uh, I, rem I, remember, I remember the first Division I football game where I was a college president and we won the game. It was an away game. And after the game, people came up to me and said, congratulations, and shook my hand. I thought, what in the world? I didn't do anything. <laughs> you get way more credit sometimes than you deserve. And then it dawned on me, oh, when we lose a game, it's going to be my fault. <laughs> and I promise you, that's the truth. I can't tell you how many times I'd come home and my phone recorder would be filled up with messages, Dr. Sloan, do something! Football. It's an interesting life, but it's a pressure-filled life. In, um, you're a target. When you're in ministry, when you're in any sort of visible role, you're a target. And some folk just have the habit of wanting to sort of take you down a peg or two. It's okay. I guess it's human nature. Paul says, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, when he gives a list of the catalog of suffering, he talks about his credentials and he compares his credentials with the super apostles that are trying to claim that they've got better credentials than Paul. And Paul says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they, you know, sons of David, uh, sons of Abraham? So am I. And he goes on down. He says, to give his credentials, I in far more sufferings without number. And he goes on to list the way he suffered. And that's his credential. It's a sign that he's a true apostle. He says... He says, three times I was beaten with rods. You want that on your resume? Five times, he says, I received from the Jews. It's the synagogue disciplinary function. Paul would go into a town and preach in a synagogue. And he says that five times I received from the Jews the 39 lashes. I've been in, once I was stoned, he says. I've been in danger on rivers, dangers by robbers, dangers on the highways, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles. I've been in riots and tumults. A day and a night I've spent in the, in the deep. And besides all of this, he says, there's the daily, this is what I wanted you to hear, there's the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. This burden that you just can't get rid of. Or in 2 Corinthians 1.8, Paul says, Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, about the affliction. He's talking about his apostolic leadership life. I would not have you ignorant, brethren, of the affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. No, I mean, usually, you know, as leaders, we want to say, well, people ask me how things are going. I say, things are going great. You know, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing just fine. You do the same thing. It's a ceremonial answer to a, a friendly ceremonial question. Because you haven't got time to go into all the details of what everything is that's going wrong. Paul says, the affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, 
so that we despaired even of life. Can you imagine? The apostle says he despaired of life. But God who, then, then he says in, in 2 Corinthians 7, he says even after we left Asia and came into Macedonia, our flesh, our body had no rest. There were conflicts without, fears within. But God who comforts the depressed and the downtrodden comforted us by the coming of Titus, his friend. He saw the face of God in the face of his friend. There are a lot of highs, strange things, and a lot of lows. Appreciate those who labor among you. Encourage them. All of us need encouragement. And your, your ministers are often, uh, they, they, wanna be, they want to be, we all want to be like Barnabas, constantly positive and constantly encouraging. But appreciate those. They're worthy of double honor. Trust them. Don't, there, there are some house elders in Ephesus who needed to be excommunicated. And Paul says in verse 20, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest may be fearful of, of sinning. There are some who need to be rebuked. And he, Paul faces up to the fact that, that leaders can fail too. But he also says, don't be quick to receive a criticism or an accusation. Verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. People in leadership are targets and they're they're easy to be, it's easy to criticize them. It's easy to fault, find fault and to nitpick. I heard one college president say one time not too long ago, he said, you know, I am one careless statement, one politically incorrect, careless statement away from being front page news and losing my job. Well, it's true. Our, our world is so, so hyper uh, focused on, 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 the faults of everyone else. And the social media make it impossible for you to say or do anything, it seems, privately or confidentially. So Paul says, trust your leaders. Yes, there are some bad ones who need to be dealt with. But then he says, I solemnly charge you. This is a serious thing. Because the church is this pillar and support of the truth. The church, through its leaders, is to proclaim the gospel and protect the gospel and preserve the gospel. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and His chosen angels. This is the elect heavenly court that are going to come with the, at the return of Christ, 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 and following. They're going to come with, at the return of Christ uh, with Him and they will be His agents of power to put things in order and set things right. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and His chosen angels to maintain, to guard what I'm telling you without bias. It's the gospel that's at stake. The godliness, the purity, the holiness, the truth speaking and the truth maintaining status of the church is what we must preserve and maintain. And Paul says, you know, if some, if some elders have to be replaced, verse 24 then don't, well, verse 22, don't be too quick about it. Let them be tested. Sometimes it's obvious, verse 24, uh, what the deeds and sins of some are. 
Their deeds and sins are so bad that everybody knows it, and they've already been stacked up in the throne room of God awaiting the final judgment. But others, you don't know. So let them first be tested. Likewise, he says, it's true that a lot of people, you know, let people be tested. Sometimes you have great people and you, and you just don't know about it. I always love to think of my father in that kind of situation. I didn't know all the great things my father did in his life, how he helped widows and orphans and people in need until after his death and people for years at his funeral, but then for years would tell me stories of how I had no idea of how he had given money or helped with a tax return or done this or that on behalf of a widow or orphan. So don't lay hands on anybody too quickly. There are some whose deeds are obvious, others, their good deeds are not obvious, but let people be tested. So my final exhortation is preserve the truth. Allow your pastors and leaders and deacons and elders, allow them to be courageous. Allow them to speak the truth. It's not easy to speak the truth in our world today. There's a lot of pressure on people just to conform with what the crowds are saying. But the church of the living God is the pillar and support of the truth. May we be a people who guard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your mercies. Help us to be faithful to you. We submit ourselves to you again on this Lord's Day. We ask for a refreshing move of your spirit. We ask that you would renew us, that you would forgive us, that you would bless us and lead us so that we might be the people you've called us to be. Lord, I ask you to bless this congregation, bless these satellite campuses, bless this digital audience so that they might faithfully represent you wherever they go in groups large and small. Lord, we pray for the blessing of your wise leading and guiding on these, your people, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church. We invite you to worship with us at one of our four locations, at The Loop, Cypress, Downtown, or Siena. Follow us on social media or visit us online at houstonsfirst.org.